All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you here, starting off with BC's back to school plan under fire as BC kids get set to return to class just five weeks from today. The BC government announced the back to school plan. Last week, kids will be back in class full-time, no mandatory face masks in school, no mandatory social distancing in the classroom. This plan is under fire. The teachers' union wants a do-over. They want the plan to be modified and a delayed start to the school year. An online petition against the plan is gaining steam from parents who want the option to keep their kids at home. There's even one dad who is threatening to go to court to allow his kid to stay at home. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Tracy Sherlock. She is an education reporter in BC. I highly recommend her blog, Education Matters, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Tracy, thank you for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, what are you hearing uh, about this plan? I know you got your, your finger on the pulse of it. What's kind of the reaction you're hearing from parents and interest groups here? So I would say there's kind of two. Um, There's the group that really wants to trust in um, Dr. Bonnie Henry and everything she's done here in BC. And then there's the others who are just really nervous about expanding their bubbles um, so much all at once um, because the cohorts in schools are going to be quite a bit larger. It's uh, 60 kids in elementary and 120 in secondary school, and that's a lot bigger than the social groups people have been keeping over the summer. So there's a lot of concern over that. Right. You've done a great job covering this on your blog. I've uh, tweeted out a link to your blog on Twitter. If people want to give me a follow on Twitter, please, you'll find it there. Um, One of the things you've been writing about is the online petition against the plan. Tell me about that, because this seems to be gaining steam online. It it sure does. I just was looking at it. It now has more than 10,000 signatures, where yesterday when I wrote about it, it had about 4,000. So um, it's definitely getting some traction for sure. What is the point of that petition? What do they want? Yeah, they want uh, the return to school in September to be optional. In other words, that there be an online component similar to what there was in June. Right. And is, is there not an, an online option for parents now? Like, I thought I heard the education minister say people would have an option to stay home. So there's, there have always been online and at-home schooling options for parents yep. pre-COVID for forever, and those are still in existence. So yes, parents could choose to homeschool. They could choose to do designated learning, which is um, the online schooling that's always been available. The problems with those things are, first of all, you would no longer be connected to your school that you presently go to, and in fact, you might even lose your space in that school if you chose to go homeschooling or designated learning. Uh, yeah. um, and then secondly, so you wouldn't be connected with your school. Uh, what was the second point I was going to make? Uh, can't remember. Sorry. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> um, the other thing that I think is, is interesting, though, I, I think most parents want their kids to go back to school. I mean, I got two, two kids in the public school system, and they want to go back to school. They want to see their friends. And we want them to go back to school, too, or, you know, my, myself, my wife. So we want, the kid, we want our kids back in school. And I, I think most parents would probably agree with that. But when you take a look at the details on this plan, and compare it to what's going on in other jurisdictions, this is where I think it gets interesting because when you take a look at Ontario, for example, that have brought in a pretty different type of plan with mandatory masks and that kind of thing. Alberta just announced mandatory masks. 
And you did a, a fantastic breakdown and sort of comparators of between Ontario, for example, and British Columbia. What are sort of some of the main differences that jump out at you between the Ontario plan and the BC back to school plan? So the masks is, is a big one because um, in Ontario, anybody older than grade four will be wearing a mask all the time. Um, wow. And in BC, and for younger kids, it's optional. It's kind of hard with younger kids. Um, and they, science is also sort of showing that younger kids don't tend to spread the virus as much. But, of course, that's changing every day. But um, uh, in B.C., masks are optional. And they're, it, um, it's recommended for any time you cannot social distance. But, of course, the entire time within the cohort, social distancing is not necessary or even possible. If you're in a classroom with 30 kids, it's not going to be possible right. to keep two meters between everybody. Right. And when you also take, oh, here's another one that jumped out at me on the Ontario plan in secondary schools in Ontario, so in high schools, in-person learning mm-hmm. will be every other day uh, with groups of about 15 kids. So yeah. that's very different from the BC plan where, what, high school kids will be back to school basically every day, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Except in very large high schools where it isn't possible. So... So those are key differences. Now, um, one thing to remember is that in Ontario, that's only true um, in, I think it's 24 school districts. So a a reader pointed that out to me. It's a a fine point. Um, In the other school districts, it will be all day. But those school districts include, for example, all of Toronto. So... You also did a great blog post that I highly recommend taking a look at the recommendations for back to school that were issued by uh, Harvard University. And it's really interesting to take a look at those guidelines that was that were issued by a very prestigious uh, think tank in school. And it recommends, for example, that students wear face masks as much as possible. And here we have other provinces going with mandatory face masks, yet in British Columbia, optional for face masks in all grades. You take a look at some of the detailed funding that has been announced for school safety in Ontario. That really jumped out at me as well. The Ontario plan includes some very specific line items for back-to-school safety, including uh, hiring public health nurses, $50 million for that, $60 million for masks and personal protective equipment, uh, $30 million for additional teaching additional teaching posi- uh, positions, $75 million for additional custodians and cleaning services, uh, $40 million to clean school buses. It goes on and on, a very, very detailed plan, whereas BC has put in $45 million for uh, cleaning. Um, I don't know. It just, it just seems like the, the, the BC plan is a lot less detailed than some other provinces. The, pub- the public health nurses is a really interesting point, too. Now, I, I don't exactly know what those public health nurses are, are going to be doing, but yeah. I do know that here in, in BC, one of the reasons we're not doing screening, well, students and teachers are supposed to do self-screening, which means they, they consider whether they're feeling sick before they come to school, but we're not doing any sort of temperature taking at the school yeah. or right. things like that, and it's because, um, well, the exact words, well, I can't remember the exact words, but what it says in the BC plan is something like, you know, teachers aren't trained to be medical professionals. And, of course, that's fair and true. But I assume perhaps some of this money in in Ontario will go towards things like that. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the tent city in Strathcona Park in East Vancouver now. This is like the latest and the biggest encampment in the city, and it seems like as soon as one a tent city is shut down in a city park, another one opens up. The Oppenheimer uh, Park tent city, we had seen the uh, tents in Crab Park. Now the Strathcona Park uh, tent city seems to be growing by the day and people looking for solutions here let's check in with katie lewis now from the strathcona residents association and i'm very pleased to welcome her hi katie hi mike nice to be here yeah thank you very much for doing this when did the tents the tents first started to appear in the park yeah so the tents uh, first arrived june 16th um, and i would say there was probably about 40 of them i went down the day uh they arrived um and uh, at my last count a couple of days ago, we're probably around 350, maybe up to 400 by this wow. point. Wow. Wow. That, that's a lot. That's huge. What is the, what's been the impact on the neighborhood? Yeah, I think um, the impact has been pretty significant. Um, I think when the campers moved in, um, we, were, we were quite welcoming, as most people in Strathcona are. Um, and we felt that we uh, wanted to really see how it would go. Um, uh, unfortunately, over the last six weeks, we've seen a real um, impact on our community in, in quite negative ways. We've seen um, a, a lot of needles everywhere. We've had a lot of criminal incidents happen. Um, we've had incidents with children. Um, oh. And uh, we're, we're really asking our elected leaders to step up and help us with this situation um, because it's becoming, it's getting worse and worse and we need some action now. Yeah. What are the incidents with children that have occurred? Yeah. So there have been a number, some of which, uh, some of the ones I've witnessed and some have been told to me by multiple residents. Um, a weapon was found in a purse abandoned at the McLean Park water park. Um, we saw a drug drop happening at Strathcona Elementary. Um, and then earlier this week, a child was picked up. Um, by a man who was clearly very unwell at McLean Park. He was shaken, um, and then the man ran off into the water park, which is filled with children, and and kind of had a fight there. And then most recently on Friday, um, Councillor Pete Fry was involved in an altercation um, with a man, and we don't know if he was from the homeless encampment, but what we do know is that these these incidents are occurring at a much greater rate. Um, And a lot of residents... Uh, absolutely don't feel safe in their own neighborhood and and we feel that's unacceptable yeah speaking of katie lewis strathcona residents association like one of the things that you've mentioned i've listened carefully over the last few days to your comments and one of the things that's impressed me is that um you've talked about the willingness for people in the neighborhood to to find a solution i mean this is this is strathcona after all it's east vancouver and when the, the tents first started showing up uh, you guys were, did you guys consider them to be part of the neighborhood in some ways? Like, does your neighborhood association represent people living in the park as well as the people yeah. who own homes in the in the neighborhood? Absolutely. And uh, I would say that we, we absolutely still represent residents in the park because they are Strathcona residents. Um, yeah, right. Strathcona is a, a unique community that way. Um, we welcome everyone and anyone. Um, and, you know, up to this point, we're still trying to figure out how we can make this situation work. Um, however, like the community feels like a bit of collateral damage at the moment in between yeah. a war between homeless activists and the government. Yeah, I can certainly understand that, I mean, especially when you have 400 tents in, in a park and uh, the incidents that you're describing, for sure. Um, 
do you do you consider do, do, do the tents are the tents allowed to be there all day or do they have to do they have to fold up the tents in the morning? I mean, what are the official rules? Well, um, the park board has not enacted its most recent bylaw, which re- would require the the campers to move out by seven a.m. every morning. And the park board's been quite clear that they're not they're they're in no they will not enforce. Um, any anything of the such uh however they are quick to do it in every other vancouver park but um so it's not being enforced um and we're we're also not sure that's probably not the right answer um but what we really do need we need multiple levels of government to step up and to come up with a different solution um one that we've been um very supportive of is the idea of navigation centers um so that would be that's like a a very large kind of football field size tent where very low barrier where any homeless person could come in, they can bring their pets, um, but it's managed and it's resourced and it also has significant wraparound supports. Um, and one location that we have thought that might, that might be a possibility is the new uh, hospital grounds um, since it's not currently in use and could provide some kind of immediate um, resourcing for people in the camp who, who honestly, um, who need our help. Um, and, right. you know, how many tents is this going to grow to? And I think this points to such a bigger issue. Um, this is an issue of homelessness. It's an issue of addiction. It's an a issue of mental illness. Um, yeah. But it is the government's responsibility to deal with this. And, and that's what we would like to see happen. Okay. The navigation center you described, it's an interesting idea. And the, the hospital grounds, are those, where are, the, where are those hospital grounds? Are they nearby? Yeah. So they're, they're actually still um, within uh, Strathcona. Um, so we're not under any illusion that this isn't going to be in our neighborhood, but we, we just want to make sure that it's safe for campers. Um, and then it's resourced properly. Uh, we can look to other cities. San Francisco has, has about seven navigation centers and I believe they're, uh, they're, they will have three more soon. Um, so this isn't, we're not reinventing the wheel here. Uh, navigation centers have been used in multiple cities across the U S and they have been quite successful, at um, helping uh, people who are homeless get what they need. And, and those needs differ. And I think that's what we need to do in the camp is kind of triage the needs of campers there and, and figure out what everyone needs and then go from there. Yeah, I agree with you. The situation is not sustainable and there should be a, a better government response. And one is and one is absolutely required, especially when you start talking about some of the incidents that you described, whether they involve kids, weapons, violence, sexual, physical assault, verbal assault all of this kind of stuff is happening do you think that the is are the police services adequate in the neighborhood to deal with this um well we have been in frequent contact with the police um and we would like to see more of a police presence around our neighborhood um just due to some of the incidents that have been happening um you know, just the other night, I was sitting um, in my front patio area right across the street from McLean Park, and, you know, there was um, a number of patched bikers showed up and rode around the neighborhood. So we are, wow. and we have been in conversation that, that this is common, this is exactly what happened at Oppenheimer, and that there there is potential for a turf drug turf war here. Um, but my real concern is that our neighborhood is, is stuck in the middle of it, and we feel um, we feel like we're sitting ducks and people feel people are scared. You know, I talked to neighbors who have had their house attempted to be broken into like 15 times at this point. Right. Um, wow. 
So this is this is a daily occurrence, and you know it's really wearing on the community. And it's also, you know, I would argue that this park is not the best place for campers either, because you know, uh, I would like to see them have more than you know a tent in a public park. And I think that's something that that um, that everyone deserves. And I think that's something that that we can do if we have the political will. And realistically, it's going to cost money, and and yeah. that's probably what it comes down to. Speaking to Katie Lewis, Strathcona Residents Association, about the tent city in uh, Strathcona Park, estimated uh, 400, up to 400 tents there now. Um, do you think the Vancouver Park Board is up to this? I, I just don't think that their response in these tent cities has been adequate, and I wonder if maybe uh, responsibility should be transferred elsewhere. But I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the performance of the Park Board. No, and I absolutely agree with you, Mike. Um, we've felt that there's there's no way that the park board is resourced to deal with this issue, and we we quite frankly we've been quite disappointed with with how they have dealt with this issue, which is not do anything. Um, yeah, uh, and so we yeah. have the residents association has asked the park board uh, to see jurisdiction of this park um, uh, to the province um, or even the city. Um, because we we understand they they have you know 15 park rangers or whatever it is to handle 240 parks in Vancouver. So I mean it's just not realistic to think that they can deal with this. Um, but we so we do feel like it uh, you know this issue needs to be um, and ideally I, I would like to see it go to the province because I yeah. think they are in the best position to deal with this situation. Um, so so we have asked that. Um, and we have reached out to the park board numbers many, many times, and they they don't uh, they haven't responded to me yet. But I am hopeful that I will get a reply soon. No, I think this requires a vigorous and full provincial response because if you take a look at the jurisdiction, I think this comes down to a healthcare crisis. Um, this is a, there are crime issues involved, and uh, this is provincial jurisdiction. Um, yeah, the, prov- I- the province is responsible for healthcare, mental health addiction services they've got a full separate ministry responsible in these areas and this is a glaring example in my opinion of the requirement for the province to step in and when you take a look at the um, some of the comments from the minister responsible particularly Shane Simpson who's the minister of social development and poverty reduction you know I, I hear him saying well we want the feds to help uh, I don't know do you think the province has been adequate the, the, the provincial response has been adequate well, we have had quite a few discussions with the province, and they, they tell us that there is a lot of work going on behind the scenes, but they also tell us that they need federal government to step up. Um, you know, and I'm trying to work hard on that as well. But, I, you know, at, at some point, um, we are questioning why a residents association in Strathcona is the one advocating for homeless people in Canada. <laughs> Because I'm not sure that's our job either. And, you know, we're happy to represent all residents in Strathcona. Um, but what what we really need to do is see all levels of government come together and come up with a cohesive plan together instead of blaming each other about who does what and whose responsibility it's not. Um, and instead kind of take a Dr. Bonnie Henry approach and, and tackle it head on and come up with some solutions together. Right. And as you mentioned uh you know, under no illusions that you need money. I mean, money is what's required. If, if, if the answer is housing with wraparound services, which you talk to most experts, they'll say that's what you'd need. Uh, that costs money. So you need the province to come forward with the money. Yeah, I mean, they can work with the feds, but you need a, you need a rapid response. I mean, this is how long this can't go on. 
You know, how no, I, it's yeah. We are, so we're entering. I guess today is actually the week seven, um, yeah. and you know, uh, we've kind of been given the indication that um, this is going to be here for a while. Um, however, you know, we disagree with that, and we we feel that response is needed now. Um, and that the quicker the response happens, um, the more effective it could be. So, you know, we're very supportive of any solutions. Um, we've pitched a few ourselves. Um, and, you know, we're extremely hopeful that we'll hear something in the next week or two. And, and if not, you know, we'll just continue to <laughs> keep working and, and uh, hoping that people will listen eventually because things are escalating. And, um, you know, we're very concerned that something something really bad might happen and and this was always my concern from the beginning um that we don't want to end up in a situation like oppenheimer and i always ask what were our learnings from oppenheimer and how do we do better this time come back to the show as we continue to talk about the covid19 pandemic let's talk about the global search for a vaccine now hundreds of millions of dollars thousands of hours of research time has been invested in the hunt for a vaccine for the coronavirus and we continue to hear positive reports on the hopeful signs of for vaccine uh, dr anthony fauci in the united states commenting the other day that he's hopeful a vaccine could be developed uh, possibly early in the new year let's talk to jason tetro about it now host of the super awesome science show he's an epidemiologist i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show hi jason hello there Thanks a lot for coming on. This is the, um, I guess, in some people's minds, the magic bullet that we're all hoping will appear, that we'll get this vaccine, that will that it will be effective. How close are we to a COVID-19 vaccine today? Well, we're into phase three for a number of them. And uh, the ones that are going into phase three aren't mimics of each other. They're all completely separate. So one of them is going to show a much better response and when that happens, it's going to help. We're probably looking at around November to uh, get some of those data. Uh, once we have that, then we can start talking about whether or not we could get it into regulatory uh, discussions. Possibly maybe around January, we may be seeing it uh, officially available in some places around the world, uh, maybe as an emergency use. But um, it's going incredibly quickly because, I mean, yeah. this is a 10-year process that's being done in a matter of 10 months. Yeah, no, it really is. It's, it's amazing, and it's going on around the world. And I, I've read about some of the uh, hopeful signs I've seen in, in testing and research in the United Kingdom, uh, here in Canada, mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, so there, it appears that there are a number of vaccines being developed around the world. What, what are you, which ones are looking the most promising? Well, right now, um, when you think about vaccines, there are a couple ways that you make the vaccine. So the first one is to use a live virus uh, that has been what we call attenuated. Um, We're not doing that because we know that this is a dangerous virus. But what you can do is you can kill the virus or inactivate it, as we like to say. Um, That vaccine uh, has been used numerous times in the past, and it seems to be going quite well. So that's great. Another way that you can do this is by taking uh, portions of the genetic material of the virus and making that into um, sort of a pseudovirus that can produce these particles that will allow you to have an immune response. That's going well. And then finally, you have what's called a hybrid. So you take a virus that is completely harmless to us, like, say, one that causes the common cold in chimpanzees, and then you add in 
portions of the coronavirus so that it mass produces it without causing any problems, and therefore you get an immune response. That, too, is going incredibly well. So those are the approaches that we're taking at the moment that are getting into that phase three. Now, which one of those is going to give us the most robust, as we like to say, immune response that's going to have the ability to protect us today and onwards? We don't know yet, but... One of them is definitely going to come through, and that's probably where we're going to start. And, again, we're looking at probably January 2021 as being the start line. Okay, it's very hopeful. The World Health Organization has reported there are 165 vaccine candidates being studied around the world, several of those in those stage three clinical trials that you described there, Mm -hmm. Jason, and, and a number of different types of vaccines that you described there. How do they decide which one is is the best or the most robust, as you put it there? What we're going to do is we're going to look at the data as it comes out, and we're going to look at a couple of things. First off, uh, there's essentially, did it protect people? So when it's in the community and the virus is spreading in the community, are the people who get the vaccine less likely to get the virus and, and an infection? So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is we're going to look at the individuals themselves who have actually gotten the vaccine, and we're going to find out whether or not they had that Uh, immune response that we're expecting that we saw in the uh, phase two clinical trials. So in one case, there's the antibody response. We've heard all about that. And in the other case, there's the T-cell response or the cellular response. We're we're slowly starting to get the public aware of that and, and understanding what that means. What we want is a good antibody response, a really, really good T-cell response, and the ability to protect people when it's actually out in uh, the real world. That's what we're looking for. We're not at a point where we can say one way or the other, any of these are going to do it, but very, very hopeful based on what the Phase 2 was showing us. Okay, could you describe what that means when you talk about an antibody response? Like an antibody, I guess, in, in the minds of most people, is what's built up naturally in the body if you've been infected by the by Mm -hmm. by the virus, right? Yeah, so you you develop both an antibody response and a T-cell response. What we're always talking about is that antibody response. And antibodies are proteins. They look like the letter Y. And what they do is they attach really, really well to specific proteins uh, which make up a particular virus or or anything, to be honest with you. And so what you're going to do is if you have an antibody response that is going to recognize uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, then it may actually neutralize it, which means it prevents the actual virus from infecting. That's what you want. That's the first arm. The second arm of the immune system is what we call a cellular. And what this does is it looks for cells that have been infected that are sending signals essentially saying, I've been infected. And what happens is the T cells then come in. They, first off, knock out that particular cell so that it's not going to cause a problem. But more importantly, it starts to memorize what those sequences that were being shown on the top of the, of the cell um, essentially are showing. And when that happens, you create what's called a memory. And when that memory is essentially invoked, then anytime you are, you know, a cell is infected by one of these viruses again, that memory says, hey, we got to fight again. And so that's another training that a vaccine does. Um, It's far less understood in the public view, but from where we come from in the microbiology and immunology field, that's the one we really want to have. Okay, speaking to epidemiologist Jason Tetro about the search for a COVID-19 vaccine. If and when this vaccine is developed, this is kind of the hope of the world that this happens soon. 
who would get the the vaccine first? Do you think it would be kind of triaged and people who are the most vulnerable, let's say the elderly or people who are immune compromised, would they get the vaccine before other people? Uh, I would say what we're going to do is we're going to do what's called ring vaccination. This is what they did in the, uh, with Ebola in West Africa. Um, so what you do is you take the uh, vaccine and you give it to not necessarily the people who are big, uh, most at risk because they may not be able to actually produce an immune response. But all oh, the people yeah. who are around that individual, you vaccinate because they'll be able to create that robust immune response and that'll protect. Now, when you think about it, who are the ones who basically would be ring vaccination candidates? Healthcare workers? Absolutely. Family and friends of those who are most vulnerable? Absolutely. Um, So that's essentially where you're going to start. And then what's going to happen is as we start getting to a point where we have more and more doses, then you're going to see a much wider rollout. Now, are we going to get to a point like we did with the pandemic uh, flu, where in, in October of 2009, it was widely available because we knew how to do it? Um, it may end up going that route, but also remember that when that happened, the uptake was only 30%. Only about a third of people actually got that vaccine. So the reality is that in order for us to have the most effective approach, we want to do this ring vaccination first and then a much wider rollout when we have that opportunity. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the global search for a COVID-19 vaccine. According to the World Health Organization, there are 165 vaccine candidates being studied around the world. Five of those studies are in stage three clinical trials, typically the last stage before a vaccine can be approved if it shows positive results. So we're getting closer here. The, the reports do sound encouraging my guest is jason tetro he's an epidemiologist and and an immunologist he's the host of the super awesome science show uh your calls to him if you have a question about covid19 or the search for a vaccine 604-280-9898 is the number to call star 9898 on your cell jd in white rock on the open line hi hey mike love the show uh jason still have your book love it so question is do we know that uh, uh, once somebody is infected how long until they're contagious for instance uh, someone who's infected spits in my mouth how long until i'm going to be able to infect somebody else yeah we're still figuring that one out uh, because when it comes to a viral infection you don't necessarily always clear it completely. Uh, we've seen this with some of the other viruses that have been, you know, made news like Ebola and Zika. Well, it turns out that this virus may hang out in certain parts of the body and then eventually reappear. Now, does that mean that you essentially are going to constantly cough on people when they're going to get infected? Probably not. Now, that in itself probably is somewhere between a month to six weeks that we're looking at, but we have seen cases where people have gone uh, eight weeks and even 100 days where they're still showing some kind of positivity. We're we're trying to figure out how it works with the immune system. Uh, So I unfortunately you know, have to request a bit of patience with this, but we'll get to you uh, with more research. Okay, star 9898 is the number to call on your cell. How many doses of a COVID-19 vaccine would would be needed, do you think, Jason? Will, like, will people need a booster shot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to need at least one boost, 
booster shot. Um, whether that comes at the six-week mark or the six-month mark, we're going to have to figure that one out. Um, but what I'm also going to suggest is that, much like we do with the flu vaccine, if we can't establish that really robust T-cell response, then what we're going to do is we're going to essentially have to have this particular vaccine every year as we go through subsequent waves. And the reason I say that is because if you think about the pandemic virus or uh, the flu that showed up a pandemic 10 years ago, we're currently in the 11th wave, which is one of the reasons why if you got the flu shot this year, you actually got the pandemic flu in there as well. Oh, okay. What about within Canada? Like we, the search for this vaccine is going on around the world, and we've heard a lot of encouraging reports in our own country, but also the United States, the United Kingdom, China. There's research going on everywhere. How would a vaccine be approved for use in Canada? It has to be approved by Health Canada first, right? Yeah. So what has to happen is uh, the company is going to put in what is known as a clinical trial application. When they do that, then they go through the clinical trial process. When that has been completed, then the information that is taken from that clinical trial is provided to Health Canada, and they will then look at that to find out whether or not you have, as we talked about before, the immune response, uh, the protection that essentially is shown in the community, and also the safety, which should have come through phase one and phase two. So if all of the you know boxes are checked, then there's yeah. a good reason for that to be given that regulatory approval. Now, does that happen all the time? Not really. Sometimes there are other hiccups that may happen. But for the most part, when you're dealing with a vaccine, it's a fairly um, straightforward process. And I think at that point, when we get to you know, all the boxes being ticked, then we're going to see this being accepted and eventually um, put out there. Okay, we've, all, we've also, also heard a lot of warnings from people that it's possible that a vaccine will not be found. I mean, we, we've seen that for diseases like AIDS, for example, no mm-hmm. vaccine developed. Given the hopeful reports that we've heard so far, are the chances of coming up snake eyes here and not finding a vaccine at all, are the, are the odds of that going down? Does it look very hopeful we will, this, we will develop a vaccine somewhere? We've seen this before with uh, some of the viruses, including influenza. You've heard of the bad flu season or bad vaccine season, (laughs) as we've been told. Uh, There is the possibility that we may end up uh, developing a response, but one that isn't going to be protective enough against this particular virus. However, what we also know is that if we do have a vaccine that provides us with partial immunity, then what we can do is we can say that, well, you may end up still getting infected. You may still end up having some symptoms, but because of that partial immunity, you won't have the severe symptoms that could potentially put you in hospital. So in that context, I think a vaccine is going to be available. It all depends, though, on whether or not it's going to be, you know, that fully protective like we see with measles, partially protective like we've seen with some of those years with flu, or essentially um, something that we're only giving as a ring vaccine to be able to be sure that we're protecting the most vulnerable, which is the worst case scenario. And if it is a, would it be an annual vaccine like like we get with the flu shot every year? Yeah, if we end up seeing uh, some kind of uh, waning of the immunity over the first three to six months after you've had it, then, yeah, we'll probably be going into the same type of situation as we do with the flu vaccine. And if they develop one that is compatible, you may still only have one shot. 
Okay, and what if you get the virus, you catch COVID-19 and you recover? Mm-hmm. Are you immune after that? Uh, you should be. The, the question is for how long. And that we still haven't really found out. Um, we're figuring that you should be given some immunity for probably several months. Um, when we've looked at when the virus has come back into places like China and, and Hong Kong, um, that, you know, it's new cases that are coming up that are causing the surges. We're not seeing those reinfections. So at this point, we're kind of presuming that you're going to have some kind of immunity that will be protective, but we can't be sure. And again, remember that, that data that Bonnie Henry came out with where it's something like only 0.55% of the population has been infected? It's almost impossible to come up with some idea as to what protection you're going to have until you start seeing more and more of the population being affected. Hopefully, we never have to actually get there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, where can people check out your show, Jason, if they're interested well, the Super Awesome Science Show is part of the Curious Cast family, and I am very happy to say that we have won uh, a Canadian Best Canadian Podcast Award two years in a row. All you have to do is put in the Super Awesome Science Show into Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your uh, podcasts. You're going to love it. You're going to laugh. You're going to cry. You're going to learn something in the process. And uh, if you have a question for the upcoming season, send me an email. I'm happy to receive it. All right, welcome back. I remember when I was a kid, like a lot of kids, I loved dinosaurs. I had all kinds of dinosaur models in my bedroom. I had dinosaur books on my bookshelf. I just loved it. I just used to love to geek out on dinosaurs. I'm still fascinated by them. And one dinosaur that I don't think they knew about when I was a kid, because I think it might have been my favorite one, is an absolutely bizarre, massive, and terrifying creature called the Spinosaurus, and if you remember back to one of the Jurassic Park movies, it was Jurassic Park 3, there was a Spinosaurus in that movie, there was an epic fight scene between a Spinosaurus and a T-Rex in that movie. This thing is bigger than a T-Rex, it's actually more terrifying than a T-Rex, I think, in a lot of cases. Have a listen to this now, here's a little bit more about the Spinosaurus here from National Geographic. Spinosaurus is probably the most bizarre dinosaur out there. Looking at Spinosaurus, I, I always feel like I'm working on an alien from outer space. It's unlike any other dinosaur. It's the largest predatory dinosaur. It's uh, bigger than T-Rex by a good margin. But really the most interesting thing for me is that it's the first dinosaur that really took to the water. This animal is something that is really adapted like a crocodile. It has a mean crocodile-like head and long neck, and like a crocodile, it's got a good tail. Flat and spreading toes might have been webbed for swimming. We think that these are prima facie evidence. They're, they're, they're really great clues for an aquatic lifestyle. One of the most striking features in the skeleton is the big sail. Basically, a series of long spines on the back of the animal. Oh, oh yeah, the big sail on the back. It's just a bizarre looking dinosaur. It's absolutely extraordinary. Let's check in now with Catherine Abbott. She is a paleo fossil preparator and a 3D technician at Dino Lab in Victoria currently working on some spinosaurus fossils i'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show Catherine. how are you i'm doing well how are you mike I i'm doing great it's nice to talk to you again i follow you on social media i follow you on twitter and um <laughs> i i love how you you get you love these dinosaurs you geek out on them and i love it 
I, I think you, do you have a Spinosaurus tattoo on your arm? I think you do, don't you? <laughs> I do. Anybody who knows me or anybody that follows me on social media knows that this is my favorite dinosaur, and it's so, so fascinating. It really is. It's just an absolutely bizarre-looking thing. Now, tell me a little bit about Dino Lab and the work that you guys do there. And you've got some Spinosaurus. What? How many pieces of a Spinosaurus you got there right now? So, Dino Lab is a fossil preparation lab and museum based out of Victoria on Vancouver Island. Yeah. And what we do is we prepare mount or prepare, clean, and mount dinosaurs, and then send them to museums all over the world. So, right now. We actually have a nearly complete Spinosaurus arm in our gallery, and we're letting people come in and touch and hold pieces of this really amazing creature. That's incredible, and people might not know about Dino Lab in Victoria. I think it's kind of a kind of a, uh, a hidden gem in Victoria, and the work that you guys do. Uh, you work with museum, world-class museums, and I remember the last time I talked to you, you guys were working on a T-Rex, right? Like, you guys work on a big, major T-Rex skeleton there. Yes, that was Victoria the T-Rex, and she's actually been sent off to Phoenix, and she's at, I believe she's at the Arizona Science Center, and we've got Dozer the Triceratops in her place, and I think we spoke about Dozer the last time we had a chat. Yeah, yeah, no, it's amazing, the stuff that you guys do there, and it's it's wonderful. So let's talk about the Spinosaurus here now. So how would you describe this? Can you kind of paint a word picture for radio of what this thing looks like? Absolutely. I think Nazar, the paleontologist in the interview you just had, he did a really good job. It's kind of like if you took a dinosaur and you kind of gave it all the features of a crocodile. Spinosaurus saw what crocodile was doing and he's like, I want to do that. So he's got kind of a big paddle-like tail that's recently been discovered just this year. This is brand new. Before 2020, Spinosaurus was thought to have a tail like a T-Rex. It's also a quadruped, and so that means that it's walking on four legs instead of two. The only dinosaur that we know of that's actually aquatic. So Mosasaurus and Plesiosaurus, they're not dinosaurs, they're marine reptiles. This is the only dinosaur that we know of that is actually semi-aquatic, so most likely eating wow. large fish and also eating um, probably an opportunist who would eat something off the land if it came towards it. Yeah, it really is an amazing looking creature. It's kind of like a like a cross between a crocodile and a and a T Rex. And you mentioned that. Um, the, by the way, the two paleontologists that you heard in that uh, National Geographic uh, audio we played there are Nizar Ibrahim and Paul Sereno. Just wanted to just credit them because any anytime you hear people talking about this particular dinosaur, they people seem to get excited about it because it's just so big ferocious bizarre looking and why is is that why is why is it your favorite why is it your number one well i love spinosaurus not only because the anatomy is completely bizarre but because of its incredible backstory the backstory of spinosaurus is unlike anything that you've ever heard before the spinosaurus was originally discovered in 1915 by a german paleontologist who found it in morocco and brought it to a museum in germany well that was during World War II, and the museum was actually bombed, losing the wow. only Spinosaurus known to history for over 100 years. Then, that paleontologist you just heard, Nazar Ibrahim, he made it his life goal, he's half Moroccan, half German, to go out and find a Spinosaurus. So he went out into the desert, and he searched forever, and he couldn't find one. The last day of his exhibition, he's sitting in a coffee shop, and he sees this man with a box of fossils, and he runs up, and he picks up one of the fossils in the box. And it's really weird. It has this really weird line in it. He's like, that's kind of bizarre, and he puts it back in the box. 
Well, he meets up with some of his friends or some of his paleontologist friends in Italy, and they have some of these bones. He goes, what are these bones? And they say, those are Spinosaurus bones. And he's like, no, where did you get them? And he goes, there's this man in the desert with a box of fossils. He goes, no, I just saw him. So wow. he, uh, he goes out on a mission to find this guy, and he's called the, he called him the man in the mustache. And he tried to find this guy for several months looking for him. The last day of his tour, he's sitting in a coffee shop, and the man with the mustache walks by with a box of fossils. And he runs up and he says, you need to tell me where you got these bones. And he goes, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. And he's like, you don't understand. I've been looking for you for months. I need to know so he convinces him, and he takes him out to a hole in the desert, and they find a nearly complete Spinosaurus wow. in the desert for the first time in over a hundred years. Finally, people are starting to know what this dinosaur look what this dinosaur looks like, and Azar even recently discovered the tail of Spinosaurus and proved that it actually had a tail, kind of more like a crocodile. And that's just this year. Wow, that's amazing. You're right. That is an awesome backstory for the discovery of this uh, this particular dinosaur, I guess the rediscovery of it. And what a treat for you, uh, for someone who, who loves this particular species, to be working on a, a fossil of a Spinosaurus. So what, tell me again the, the, uh, the piece that you've got there that you're working on. So we have a Spinosaurus arm, and it's on display in the museum right now. And we have, it's nearly complete. There's a couple of bones that are replicas, but all the claws are real. All of the phalanges and all of the carpals are real. Uh, the humerus is cast, and I believe the radius and all that are either half and half or they're cast as well. Okay, that's amazing. And when you work on the, when you mentioned the arm, does it have big claws? I seem to recall it had like big, big claws in the front. Massive claws. Yeah. Like you took, you take a T-Rex claw and this, animal just dwarfs the t-rex claw you take a t-rex humerus yep. a bone in the upper arm and there's nothing funny about the size of a spinosaurus's arm in comparison to a t-rex because it just dwarfs it these animals are massive 60 feet long the t-rex wow. is only about 45 feet long wow this is bigger than a t-rex it, spinosaurus was featured in one of the jurassic park movies jurassic park 3 and very memorable because it, it just looked awesome on screen do you think that was an accurate depiction of a spinosaurus in that movie well that was an accurate depiction of the the spinosaurus before nazar's discovery yeah. now it looks completely different so hmm. spinosaurus used to kind of look like a t-rex with a sail on its back and an alligator face and then big claws in the front. It doesn't look like that anymore. And that's kind of, it's kind of sad to people who really love the classic look of the Spinosaurus, but also it's really exciting because it proves that science is always changing and you can't really get too attached to how a dinosaur looks. Right. Now it's walking on four legs. It's got a big alligator head. It's got the sail has even changed with recent discoveries. And then the discovery of this tail is just, proves that this dinosaur was a crocodile dinosaur covergently evolved into the life of a crocodile. Amazing. Um, what happens to the fossils, the Spinosaurus fossils, after you have finished working on them? Where will they be going? So we know for sure that we are keeping this arm until Christmas time. So if people want to see it, uh, they can book a tour online. You can't just show up to Dino Lab. Unfortunately, you have to be. You have to book a tour, okay. and then we'll have it till Christmas. And then after that, I think it's either. I believe it's going to be going to a museum. 
Okay, so just last question for you, Catherine. For people who want to visit Dino Lab in Victoria, which I encourage people to do because it's a super cool place. So is this like a COVID-19 type uh, protocol you guys got in place to book ahead of time? Absolutely. So we've completely changed the way that we do tours now. Everything is COVID safe. People are required to wear a mask. We Before, you used to be able to come in and you touch everything, but that's unfortunately not the world we live in. Because we offer such an intimate experience, we need to be able to take protocols and make sure that our staff is safe and the public is safe. So people will be sanitizing their hands before they touch the bones. That way you know that the person before you sanitize their hands and you sanitize your hands for the next person. We've also set up plastic sheeting in between each of the workstations where the people get to work on dinosaur bones and a couple of other things, of course. Okay, dinolabinc.ca, right? dinolabinc.ca, and that is okay. how you find out more information. We also have Instagram. You can check out the new Spinosaurus news on our Instagram as well. Okay, Catherine, you got a very cool job. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today. Anytime. Thanks, Mike.